This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. This is David Kalo of Kalo and Springgut. We're creativity lawyers in New York City, which means we do patent, trademark, copyright, and trade secret work to protect the creativity of our client across litigation, licensing, protection, and helping corporate lawyers with deals in all technologies, including physics, chemistry, biology, software, and design. We're talking today about the recent Federal Circuit opinion in Centillion Data Systems versus Quest Communications, in which you had the interesting problem of a divided infringement or joint infringement, where the claims are phrased such that it would appear that it takes two or more parties to tango. No one person seems to do every element of the claims. And the question is, what lessons or useful knowledge could be extracted from that case and some of the commentary that's occurred in the various blogs and articles already written, including one we did in the New York Law Journal. And I think the main lesson I would offer is that all IP lawyers, and uh, in some sense particularly prosecutors, should try and start with the litigation, should start with an image of the battle, and then work back to how to prepare the weapons, strategy, tactics, logistics, in order to support that battle. And if you have that image of who am I going to want to be suing and what sort of claims do I want to have, it can help avoid some of the problems that were, while they were at least partially dodged in this case, certainly came up, consumed a great deal of money, effectively handed the defendant a defense on a silver platter. You never want a silver platter your adversary. So I would encourage the prosecutor to try and think, even under budget, even under the time pressures, who is the competitor, who's the infringer, who are we going to want to sue? And then after thinking about that, think about the detection question. What will they be doing so that we can tell whether or not they copied us or were designed around us or using prior art or using some other alternative? And that forms the basis for starting to think about the claim elements that the one party, not two or three, is going to do that are going to help you spot infringement. The next issue, again, perhaps it has to be done quickly, is to think about the rhetoric issue. How is the litigator going to persuade a jury, a judge, the federal circuit of infringement? Again, how are they going to do a match to the claim elements? How are you going to phrase the elements so that they can be matched? And then perhaps the most difficult, what sort of story is going to need to be told at trial, both as to why this is a clever invention, not obvious, what's missing from the art, why was it needed, because it is, in the end, in my view, stories that really persuade. So in a claim like this, you do have to think beyond the competitor or the large company that you want to sue. You have to think about whether for this client as a prosecutor, would it be helpful to be able to sue customers or suppliers or other people vertically on the chain, not just the large company competitor that you'd want to either stop or license. Usually that's a less happy situation for the client, but it's sure better than having no one to sue. And one of the weapons that a prosecutor has is variety. They can put in different claims in the patent so that there are different choices, claims that might be infringed by different people along the supply chain, suppliers, competitors, customers. The thing that's always difficult for any prosecutor is everything keeps changing. And in some, whatever's happening today as you're writing the patent, years later, who knows what the situation's going to be. And that's, again, where claim variety can be your friend. And, of course, there will almost always be art found during the litigation that wasn't known to you while you were writing the patent. So, again, different scope as well as different attack points are going to be useful 
to deal with the unknown art. Now, the case does not, to my read, focus on the questions of the contributory and inducing infringement so much as vicarious infringement. And while there's much to be said about those separate issues, let me abbreviate at least the way I think about it, which is that contributory infringement deals with an item that is not a staple item of commerce, doesn't have a lot of other uses. There's no substantial non-infringing use. It's a special thing adapted to perform the patent. Inducing infringement can be more broad. Maybe it's the genus of which contributory is a species. And that's when there's instructions or teaching or encouragement to infringe, even if the object in question has other uses. And that may be how you move from, in this case, the Centillion case, from the customer infringement up to contributory inducing infringement by the actual large company quest. Again, back to the prosecutor's dilemma, you always want to think about your work as a prosecutor as part of the overall business strategy, generating value to the client in the patents you get, not just collections of patents suitable for framing and hanging on the wall. That means you want to be coordinating the law part of what you do with not only the science and technology, but the business people. This is the notion of the patent committee or IP team to make sure you're getting as much input into what this patent is going to be used for, how it's going to be really meaningful to the company, and not just a certificate with a pretty ribbon. Generally, in terms of value, my abbreviation would be next best alternative. Who is doing what now? What can we imagine in the future? And how does this invention differ? And again, back to that notion of claim chart and detection. How will you spot it and be able to detect it and match it to your claims? Another important aspect of the Centillion decision is the distinction between method or process claims and systems claims. A lot of what happened in that case probably would not have happened if the claims had been process patents and there might have been a complete loss. It was actually very good practice on the part of these prosecutors to phrase these as system patents, and one could have expected the Federal Circuit to rule differently and to follow the same rule for both systems and processes. They didn't. Instead, you can imagine like a Rube Goldberg machine. The person who sets that system in motion is the infringer. So in a method claim, and again, patents cover making, using, or selling, or offering to sell, multiple actors might possess different parts of the system the question is, when you put the invention into service or you control the whole and you benefit from it, you can get a single person infringing here, the user of the phone billing system, even if there's actual parts of that system that defend in itself, the user doesn't practice all of the elements because that control is enough. The key case here was the NTP RIM or BlackBerry case, which found use in the United States even though part of the system was in Canada because, again, Use was defined as a broad right to put the invention into service without physical or direct control over each element. For a process claim, that can be very different. You might need the actual vicarious liability, the sense of being an agency relationship, one party being the agent of another and having that sort of direct control over the actions of the other, which are clearly lacking here between the phone company and its customer. So again, a variety of claims, process and system, aimed at customer and competitor can be very useful. A few last lessons from the case would be that, again, Quest was the big company that you want to sue, but it's the customer as user that was found to be, as a matter of law, the infringer. Quest itself, the good target defendant, was found as a matter of law not to be a user. 
the vicarious liability different than contributory inducing was discussed. Again, they were not found liable for their customers' use. They don't control or direct what do they do. They don't have an agency relationship. Third, there was a brief discussion of, in terms of make, use, and sell, whether Quest had made, even if they hadn't used the system. And again, they did not make all of it, only part, so they were not liable as a maker. And again, you were left here that you could not sue the party you wanted to sue for direct infringement, but at least you found somebody liable, and I presume that contributory induced might take you the rest of the way. There's uh, an interesting question in the Patently O blog as to whether a shorter claim that wouldn't have required the second party here, the user, could you still have gotten a patent? I would hope so, but I imagine there will be some technologies where you're forced to into a situation where you do have to have multi-party infringement in order to be fully teaching the invention, fully claiming it, and that's where these cases can be particularly important. It should also be noted two last things, that there was a re-examination of this patent by Quest. All claims were confirmed unchanged, which would indicate, uh, again, the power of the invention, and lastly, that my former partner, Ken Bressler, was one of the litigators for the winner, and I hope that much of the credit should go to him. Again, this is David Kalo of Kalo and Springett. I hope this brief discussion has been helpful to you. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.